0: Hello, and welcome back to Metastation. I'm Claire. I'm a 34-year-old writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm a 33-year-old English professor in Mississippi. And we're going to go ahead and just dive right in and talk about episode 311, Nevermore, uh, which is written by Kim Shumway. We're so excited to talk about this episode. We both felt almost immediately like this is... The best episode of the season, hands down. And I would say, and I would imagine you would agree, I think one of the best episodes of the entire series. Oh yeah, I agree. I literally feel, I was thinking about this after watching the show on Thursday. I felt like the jump from last week's episode to this week's episode literally felt to me like going from the worst examples of the things that this show does that make me the most upset to the best examples of the things this show does well that I love. Like it felt like, yeah. The gap from 10 to 11 felt enormous and it felt like things just turned around so quickly in a huge way. And I was just, I was so happy with the yeah, episode. Yeah.
1: It was like exhilarating, you know, to watch just, you know, like have everything unfold the way that it did and as well as it did. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's just like such, it's like night and day in yeah. so many ways. Yeah. So instead of talking about a bunch about stuff that didn't work like we did last time, <laughs> the last couple of times, we're going to talk about all the stuff that did work, which is
0: like so exciting. I love that we get to do that. I'm so happy.
1: <laughs> we get to be happy about things. Oh my like, God.
0: Because I, I love this show. I want to love this show. And, and yeah. I, and it, it's, you know, this show is so important to me and these characters are so important to me. And, and so I just, you know, yeah, it was, it was hard. It's like, I don't like, I don't like being this frustrated. And this episode, yeah. I, I felt like was firing on all cylinders. I think a good place to start something that we've been talking about since the show aired on Thursday is the idea that. For the first time for many of these characters and in many of these relationships, the real human consequences of their choices are made super explicit. Taking the big things that happened and giving us the consequences of them on a human scale. Taking them from abstractions to real concrete emotional truths and then letting us just sort of uncomfortably sit there for a while.
1: You think about 3A, how many times did someone say the phrase, my people?
0: Yes. I'm doing this for my people. This is because
1: of my people. You know, it's like over and over and over again in this way where that that was never, we were never given in sort of anchor for what that meant or, this, or the stakes of what people were doing for those people that they claimed to be doing it for. And this is like true across the board. You know, like this is not, this is true of the ways that like Pike and Bellamy talked about my people in those true ways that Clark talked about my people Alexa. Lexa, you know, it's just like something that the show is kind of doing. And so I think one thing, yeah, that was like really refreshing about this episode that's so different from the first half of the season is that all those big extractions, you know, like this is about my people or this is this is hurting people or whatever, get made concrete through an individual character or set of characters Obviously, it's awesome that the delinquents are back together and there's kind of one storyline, so it's all very unified. But a lot of it is also just that the big stakes are rooted in character and and in things that we see lived out on screen in a way that they haven't been before.
0: And I think that that is true, like, across the board on all levels of the story. Let's talk about Monty and Octavia first. Insofar as this episode has any degree of a B story, which it... It sort of, in some ways, doesn't. But it, but if it does, it is Monty and Octavia and and Hannah and yeah, yeah, um, and that moment. So yeah, so I I think that in in sort of the broad strokes, what I really loved about you know everyone's integration in this episode, and one of the things that had really high personal stakes for Monty is that by the end of this episode. Every single member of the principal cast, except for Kane, has now been brought fully into the City of Light storyline with real, active, high stakes. Like, directly engaging with it, seeing what Ali can do, seeing Jaha for who he really is, you know, the, the blinders come off. But what those stakes are and how they encounter that, varies really widely from person to person and so they all so so the choice to make it raven that the a story is about is brilliant because everybody everyone loves her so much she's so important to all of them but for Mm -hmm. monty and for clark in some very different ways I think it's really important that Clark sees Abby as they're driving away, like the Clark knows that her mother is trapped in this or tied up in this in a way that's really traumatic to see a parent betray you. And so we, we get a little taste of, you know, Clark's trauma that her mom is just standing there watching people shoot at her. And then Monty's story takes that moment which is almost in some ways foreshadowing it a little bit and I think maybe not necessarily overtly but but that it it sets us up for the idea of oh my god how difficult it must be for Clark to watch her mother just sort of stand by while this is happening and then with Monty we get that dialed up to 11 when Hannah through Allie's intervention finds them at the dropship and Monty's put in this position of having to choose between shooting his own mother and saving Octavia. You know, it's so perfect and beautiful that it's the two of them in that storyline together. It's just on, yeah, on it's yeah. it's just genius pairing because Octavia's feeling of not belonging, Octavia's questioning, you know, without Lincoln, who is she? It, she's not Sky Crew, she's not Tree Crew she feels like she's nobody and that it's Monty who says, you know, you're one of the hundred. This is the group that you belong to that you can't escape from is us. And we survive together and we're loyal and, and sort of both reminding her. And I also think reminding the audience in some way, like putting it back intentionally in the narrative that whatever else happens and whoever else kind of comes and goes in this story, the hundred is still who this TV show is about. It's still yeah. their show. It's always going to be their show. Which
1: I was so relieved that they remembered that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was one of those, it's like, I had started to sort of doubt that the writers, that they re- remembered that, that this was their show. And so it was like so nice to hear that moment and go like, yes, 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 okay, yes, like this is, this, it is the hundred. A sort of an affirmation, like their loyalty to each other comes before their loyalty to anyone else. And also, I mean, like it's, you know, the
0: fact that it was at the dropship. It makes you so emotional anytime anything happens at the dropship. But this moment in particular, it was so important that the dropship is where Octavia and Monty have that conversation about belonging and her identity and him reaffirming that to her. You know, and it reminds me of, like, it takes us right back to the very beginning
1: of the first season when Monty and Jasper and Octavia... We're kind of a unit, you know, like right at the beginning, like Monty and Jasper and Octavia, like, you know, Clark was always a little bit separate. She was kind of a Finn. She was, well, she was with Bellamy or whatever. But like, you know, like Octavia sat there with Monty when Jasper was dying from the spear in the chest. And she tried to help him save his best friend, you know, like these are the kids, these are the, even within the hundred, you know, it's always been that little, that little core group. So it was like a lovely, I think, I think Monty was the perfect person for that, you know, to kind of remind her, like, since we hit the ground, like you have been my person, you know, like we protect each other. We survive together right back to the beginning when the first
0: one of us is dying on the ground. And it's just like such a nice little touch. I think one of the things that I really loved about this episode was how season one it felt. I think for a lot of people who, who started watching the show, you know, season one, and it really was the delinquents that was the hook, the thing that I think we all fell in love with was the the way that these incredibly, like, tense, dramatic, dark, violent, insanely high-stakes stories were played out on a very human scale. So they mattered because we cared so deeply about these people and their relationships. Yeah. And as the show has sort of expanded and expanded and the world has grown and we've gotten so like deeply inside the grounder culture and adding all those new characters. And so the landscape has expanded in some really exciting ways, but juggling that with the intimacy that makes those deaths mean something that makes those stakes feel so high rooted in how much we care about these people. Like I really felt like this was the first time this whole season that I felt that same sense of you're hooked into it because you care about these people so much you know it really recentered it back on you know on our people and I think Monty both for I think the audience and for the other characters is somebody who is so universally loved you know he's a yeah. character who we listen to we believe in you know he's he comes from a place of a lot of Compassion and integrity that he's managed to hold on to really strongly in a way that some of the other characters haven't necessarily, and and so seeing seeing the turn that his story takes in this episode is shocking and jarring in some really I think profound ways.
1: I mean, I think another thing about Monty and Octavia being a pairing together is that because Monty is another character that we really you know trust, you know, like someone who although he sided with his mom and he you know did some bad things, we are we are sort of like I mean, like, you know, like, we talked about this last time, how frustrating it was. Like, everyone automatically trusts Monty, but right, not Right, right. But not Bellamy, but like, yeah. that's the thing. But that's the thing. Like, narrative, we're told, like, everybody trusts Monty. Right. right? Like, you just right. trust Monty. That's the thing. So I think it's important that, another reason why it's important that Monty is the one who has that confrontation with Octavia, you yeah. know, who, who yeah. says to, when she's like, she's like, I'm out of here. I'm not one of you, you know. And she's kind of like, you know, like, a, Octavia's a little bit on her high horse, you know, right? Yeah. Like, she's like, like, my brother did, Something I don't like, so I'm gone, you know, right, um, right. which is like minimizing things a little bit. But yeah. um, but um that, that it's Monty who says, but you are one of us, you know, like we survive together. The right thing to do here is to stay. It means something more for Monty to say that, I think, you know, or something different from somebody else. Well, she so could I never hear is, that
0: from Bellamy, you know, she wouldn't yeah. hear that from Clark.
1: Character-wise, no one else yeah. is going to say it, Yeah, but I think also because Monty is the character yes. that everyone trusts including the audience the fact that he says that kind of gives it uh, a license of like you know like a a problem that we're meant to to see that his perspective is right and that Octavia is the one who needs to sort of figure out that this is yes that these are still her people that she still has loyalty to that she still has an obligation to you know that she still has some kind of duty on some level to protect them take care of them as much as they do her. So, I mean, I think like that, that was like a great choice. The other thing I wanted to say, I, I think that's very like niftily done in terms of the way that this month, this little Monty Hannah thing plays out is that it also, we'll talk, we can, I can get back to Monty, the stakes for Monty's character in a minute. But I think like the other really neat thing that this does is that it gives us some exposition about what Allie is doing and about yes. what's happening. And about with the stakes of what Ali is up to now. Yeah. That is like that is played dramatically and is again like concrete is sort of like experienced through like we understand the weight of it and we understand the seriousness and the tragedy of it because it's Monty's mom. And we get to see this like one on one character interaction. You know, in which Monty realizes this is not my mom. This is Allie. She's trying to kill Octavia, has to shoot her. So, in addition to what this does for Monty, I think it also does a really, a really great job sort of within the story of being like, here is what's happening and here is why this is horrific and needs to be stopped. But, but like, it does it through, again, like, takes all that big stuff and it makes it concrete in a single character and in a relationship between characters that we're invested in and that we care about. And it makes those stakes hit home in a way that feels like so earned and so huge and so real. They just did such a good job with that. You was know, it's like something that I feel like some of that stuff has been not quite so like uh deftly done. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's one thing about that. Like one thing that works, I think across the board, again, like
0: this, this is one instance of many of this episode is just little things like that. A lot of, expositional and plot building work is done. And in a way that's kind of, I think um, sort of unusual for a bottle episode, which is, it is largely what this is. It's a, it's a bottle episode with sort of like two brief moments, one at the beginning. And then again at the drop ship where we go somewhere else, but we're still in the same a story. So it's, it's almost entirely a bottle episode set at Nihilus. And so for an episode where everyone is trapped in one geographic location, to give us so much important information about other things happening in a really nuanced way, I think is, is great. I feel like what we're, what we're meant to take from this episode and was sort of confirmed, you know, later at the end when you see the trailer for next week. But, but what was made clear in the narrative that we were given in this episode is that we're meant to understand that. All of Arcadia is now under Ali's control. And that. Yeah. yeah. That and the, that
1: they're his like drones, you know, that right. they're just going out like they cannot be thought sent to be their own people in any way. Right. You know, that they're just kind of like they're they're sent on these little missions and and it's and it's Ali speaking through them. Yeah. That they're going to try to manipulate you. You know, like they just like they get all of that across so quickly and so efficiently in that little scene with Monty and his mom. Yeah. You know, and in a way that that like that feels like a gut punch. You know, like if like if they had been swarmed by an army of like zombies, right? Like right. that, it wouldn't have the same impact as Monty saying, "Mom, what was Dad's favorite color?" And like that line was just like, "Oh, oh God!" You know? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I knew from the promotional photos that came out that we saw Hannah there, so we I sort yeah. of knew going into the episode that Hannah shows up somewhere and i just had this sort of creepy feeling like is this an ally thing what is she up to is she is she trying to figure out what happened to pike like what's her yeah, yeah. Like, what what's her game you know and the way that the narrative unfolds with you know ally telling raven hope is on the way and then hannah shows up and you sort of know before you know i'm watching this play out and it's like my gut is telling me, you know hannah's been chipped, Hannah's been yeah, jahad, yeah, but you don't know that until the moment where she flips and she attacks but the and the actress, and I can't remember her name, but the actress who plays Monty's mom did I think a really good job in that scene of of keeping things ambiguous until the moment that they stop being ambiguous, and you sort of feel the walls closing in a little bit, and then you hit a point yeah. where you can't you sort of can't deny it anymore and and I also I feel like in a lot of ways. One of the things that's particularly harrowing about seeing the way that that story unfolds and that, you know, the choices that Monty is forced to make is, again, you know, paralleling it with Abby is in the same position. Abby is also under Allie's control. And so I think that for the audience, sort of the your mom is possessed by Allie parallels are, are particularly chilling. Because we got Abby at the end of the last episode and then now we get Hannah in this one. I think a lot of the character deaths in this season, many I think were handled narratively not as well as they could have been. But but I think in, in a lot of ways what they've done, and I think that this is sort of when it becomes Monty's turn for that, is that they've severed ties between the delinquents and other people outside of the posse of the delinquents, you know, and, yeah, and in a way yeah. that, that we. Re- loses Lincoln and Clark loses Lexa and Monty loses his mom. So, so whoever was the person that was pulling your loyalties in two different directions being right. gone means that now. The ground has reshifted where once again, they're all each other has in some really interesting ways, right, you know, right. and in some broad strokes ways that, that make me a little nervous for Sinclair, who we'll get to in a minute, who was just amazing. <laughs> but but I yeah. we talked about this last week a little bit, too, with with Bellamy and Kane, that the way the way that this show tends to structure sort of the the, the end run of the season, the sort of the ramp up to the big whatever the big battle is, is that the adults are taken out of play. And that can happen in a number of different ways. In this particular scenario, I think what we're seeing happen is a lot of cords being cut that pull the delinquents in other directions and recentering the team as being the team that we're getting a really clear sense of Ali and Jaha and the City of Light as being, you know, clearly sort of the season's big bad. And that now every character is in that storyline, except for Cain again, everyone's on the squad. And I think that for Monty and his mom, we saw a lot this season of his loyalties being pulled in multiple directions. Yeah. And the moment that he sort of finally decisively chooses his friends over his mom and he's helping everybody escape from Arcadia, and then later when he's on the run and she betrays him, we've been seeing sort of incrementally Monty shifting away from just sort of instinctively believing that his mom is right in a way that I think brings up like we were talking about earlier some interesting questions about did Hannah actually have to die for that narrative purpose to be served we just watched rewatched this episode together before you
1: record like we usually do and so we were talking a little bit about this when we were watching like if the goal is just to get all the delinquents sort of cut off from the other people that they could be loyal to or people who, who would be their family, I don't think she had to die, right? Like, she was already an alley zombie, you know, like, and she was going to be anyway. She had already betrayed him, you know, so I don't think it was actually, for that purpose, it wasn't really necessary for Monty to shoot her, which is, like, such a really, really extreme thing for a person to do, you know, like, kill your mother is really very, obviously very upsetting. I mean, if that's the only purpose I kind of feel like... Maybe it wasn't totally necessary, but I think there are other things in there. So, I mean, you know, one thing that we also talked about is that the fact that the other thing that that moment is doing is solidifying the relationship between Octavia and Monty by A, him choosing, like, I mean, you know, he decides my mom's going to die, not Octavia. And then also because he's so fucked up by it, because he's so upset, then that, like you said, kind of activates Octavia's protective mode yeah. you know like she doesn't feel like she can leave him after that yeah she has to stick with with him she's like in the rover she's clearly deeply concerned about him you know so like it kind of like confirms for Octavia and I think at, at multiple levels that her heart is still with the delinquents yeah it just sort of makes her realize like we yes okay we'll 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 die for each other she was ready to die for Monty you know mm-hmm. and also she wants to take care of him from that level, I think it is doing something that wouldn't necessarily happen if Hannah hadn't died.
0: I think so too. I, I feel like Hannah, Hannah dying in some ways may be the only thing significant and high stakes enough to have brought Octavia back onto the team. And that, yeah, in, that's true. that in some ways the rift between Octavia and everybody that's really an outgrowth of the rift between Octavia and Bellamy had to be repaired by a reminder that she does have a family. And I think because it's Monty and because what happens in that moment is that Monty, you know, Monty choosing his friends over his mom when he's helping everyone escape from Arcadia is different in a very fundamental way from him choosing Octavia's life over his mother's life he was yeah. never gonna let Octavia die and I yeah. and I think that the regret that he feels at the end and sort of the the new direction I think it sends his character off into when he's left at the end with some doubt after they save Raven about whether his mom could also have been saved I think what I sort of see potentially being the long-term outgrowth of this that that makes it I think narratively necessary that Hannah did die is that in some ways it's like setting up potentially a really interesting role reversal between Monty and Jasper, where Jasper all season has been the person who's so deeply fucked up by his grief that he's just pushing everyone away. He's full of anger. He is consumed by these emotions that he isn't able to healthily process. And I think that one of the things that's been really beautiful about the last couple episodes, and we can talk about him more in a minute, but, you know, having Jasper have real narrative agency in the last episode and this episode has been awesome. And so seeing him, you know, kind of reconciling with Clark seems to sort of bespeak that Jasper is taking some real strides and beginning to process that. And so I feel like contrasting in some ways Monty, who has been, he's as traumatized by it as everyone else's, but he's managed to sort of he just has, he's been coping in a different way. And he seems like he's been handling these things um in a kind of more pulled together way than Jasper. Like on the surface, Jasper looks like the one who's super fucked up and Monty looks like he's handling it fine. And of course that's not true. But, like, you know,
1: it's its interesting because I think like you made me think about, you know, in the in the rover, Monty keeps saying to Octavia, that wasn't my mom, that wasn't my yeah. mom. And then at the end when he says, I could have, I didn't, ha-, you know, I could have saved her. Yeah. So it's interesting because like the thing, but Jasper's thing too with Mount Weather is that all, all season, and what he says to Clark is he's hung on to the idea that what they did at Mount Weather wasn't necessary. Yes. He could have saved them all. He does not, Jasper did not accept the argument that everybody else accepted, including Monty, that it was awful, but it had to be done. And, and the thing that I think that seems like it was sort of destroying Jasper is that he didn't believe that, you know? And so now we, we, we also get that reversal too, where I think Jasper's coming around after this episode to understanding at least the position that Clark and Bellamy and, and Monty were in, in a way that he hadn't before. And then Monty now, who I think, you know, is fucked up, but I think was sort of like processing it also in the sense of like, it was terrible, but it had to be done. Right. Now is faced with something terrible. That he thinks did not have to be done, and the thing you know, so like the necessity. Once when the necessity is gone, that's the thing that sort of like that that eats at him. So I think, yeah, I think that's like that is an interesting reversal, and I wonder. I sort of hope maybe that means that eventually we're going to get a, a Jasper Monty reconciliation that happens via Jasper talking to Monty about his grief or something like that. You I, know, think like, so I think so too.
0: I feel yeah. I feel like the trajectory that their characters are both taking seems to me leading to some kind of a moment where... Because they're never going to be the same people that they were before, and they're never going to be the same people that they were to each other because of what they've been through. But I feel yeah. like moving towards remembering that they are a unit and remembering why they were a unit. So, I, yeah, I was I was struck watching the episode again today how it feels like we're watching potentially the beginnings of Monty going down the road that Jasper is sort of coming back from, and I think allowing Monty to be dark and messy in a way that the narrative hasn't in a lot of ways always quite allowed him to go I that he's he's been in those dark storylines and he has his trauma I guess is less visible in some ways and and so now we're seeing that you know that sort of grief turned into anger because he's in that same position that Jasper was in where he's like this thing happened and I could have stopped it, you know, like believing yeah. that he could have stopped it. I guess the only thing that I don't, I don't know how differently I would feel about it if I had felt differently about Hannah as a character all season.
1: Yeah, I think it would work as well if we didn't hate Hannah so much. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that Hannah, I've never been quite sure how I feel about Hannah. I mean, like, well, I, I mean, like, as a character, I know that I hate her yeah, because she's awful. Yeah. But I think, like, right. you <laughs> know, like the way that the way we talked about, like, with Pike, one of the reasons that I find it hard to hate Pike is that there's just enough moments where you're like, you're almost a good man. That there was a version of Pike of which we got pieces because of how things I think were edited. There was a version of Pike who is a three-dimensional character who is an antagonist, but not a villain. There's a scene that Ian and Mike were both talking about on Twitter that Ian had mentioned in some interviews or had sort of alluded to, I think it was a scene as being his, one of his favorites of the season that ended up getting cut where in the interrogation scene where Kane is being sentenced and Pike is like kneeling down beside his chair, like pleading with him to not do this. Like Pike wants so badly to not have to execute Kane, you know? So there's flashes of, of that in his performance, you know, that Pike is more complex than just, Like a one-note bad guy. And Hannah never got that level of nuance. Hannah... I think that when we were first introduced to her, there were some moments where you could sort of be like, yeah, that's Monty's mom, you know, and and happy that Monty had a family reunion and, and the sort of tragedy of the story, what happened with Monty's dad. And, and she was sort of the entry point a little bit into kind of humanizing the experience of what Farm Station all went through with those two that we never saw. But almost immediately, it felt like Hannah had none of the nuance and complexity as a character that Pike had. Like whatever Hannah is doing, you're just automatically like, okay, Hannah's the worst.
1: Well, like the second thing that we see her do basically is like she shoot to want to shoot a kid in the back yeah. because they spotted them across the river. You know, like staking out land to, to colonize. She's kind of like Pike's right hand man, but with but like I, I don't know if this is the writing or the performance or both. But she also like sort of came across as having a relish for it that I yeah. think Pike never had. Yeah, you know, a sort of sense of like necessity and regret. Like Pike, you know, he like he Mike Beach I think did a good job of sort of conveying like. Yeah, this is awful, but it's gotta happen. You know, like that kind of like yeah. that that sense that he is aware that he feels some remorse, but that he is so like single-mindedly focused on what is what he's decided is best for his people. Whereas Hannah, it just like always came across more as like, boy, killing grounders sure is fun. You know, and yeah. like it's kind of just like
0: it's in really a that, like
1: snidely whiplash kind of way. Yeah, you know, it's really
0: <laughs> sinister. And I no, I think I think that's exactly it. I, I think that the thing that I appreciate and respect a lot about Mike Beach's performance is that he gives up the sense that Pike is the kind of person who under totally different circumstances would be a completely likable person. You know, like like that that yeah, it is But like you get the
1: feeling like on the arc when he was the Earth Skills teacher, he was like a very popular guy. Yeah, he like was, Bellamy like, maybe,
0: loved him and he makes a comment yeah. about like, you know, Clark being like his A student. He was clearly friends with both Kane and Jaha. Like yeah, he people, Like you know, you
1: can imagine him like shooting the shit with Kane and Jaha. Yeah. Like, like they were all bros. Something.
0: And so so you get the sense really that he's making these really sort of ugly, awful dark, fucked up choices in ways that feel to him situational. And when he says things like, I would absolutely hand myself over and let the grounders kill me if I thought that would actually stop this. Like in that, in that moment, I believe him. I believe that, or at least I believe that he believes that, you know? Yes. And, and there, and with Hannah, I think, I think that one of the challenges I've had all the way along is that you kind of have to reach to Understand why it is that Monty feels this particular loyalty to her because we haven't, we didn't see them have a good relationship. We didn't see yeah. her on the arc We know nothing about his childhood, really. We know that Monty feels connected to his family and that he misses and worries about them. Like there's, there's some moments I think in season one where he's one of the few that's talking about, you know, like. Those are our parents and families up there, like on the art. Like Yeah,
1: like he clearly is attached to them. But when yeah. you meet Hannah, you're sort of like You're like, Wait, why? Uh, why did you raise Monty Green? Seriously, like-, <laughs> like the dad
0: seemed cool, but like Hannah seems like a garbage person, you know, and, right. and like, so maybe his dad
1: was really awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like
0: maybe maybe the evil's like a recessive gene, so Monty didn't right. get it. I don't know. Um but yeah. yeah, so I think I think that's part of why you know, I've been thinking about that scene and and this storyline and their relationship a lot since I first watched the episode on Thursday, and I feel like I don't quite know how I feel about it because I'm only able to base it on the Monty-Hannah relationship that we've seen on screen, and because of what we've seen and, and my just sort of visceral distaste for Hannah it's hard for me to be like too bummed about it, except, except like, I mean, in in terms of the loss of her as a character, I'm like, good, you're awful. And I'm glad you're dead. But the big question that we won't know the answer to until we sort of see how it plays out is what direction this means that they're taking Monty's character. And I think that if, if it turns out that the reason her death was necessary is because they're ricocheting Monty off into a totally new direction That's going to have both emotional and narrative storytelling weight. And that it's the one thing that was big enough to sort of solidify Octavia's sense of how important they all are to each other. It sort of reawakens in her a really visceral sense of who they used to be to each other in the beginning and that she does belong somewhere and that they do matter. Then I feel like it's worth it. Then, then I feel, then it feels yeah. like a narratively necessary death. The other thing that
1: it does, I think thematically is, is Monty coming into this episode was the only major character, uh, you know, of this group of the sort of core group who, who has not been really shown to be struggling with the d- direct grief of any kind. The ally story seems to be moving towards having a whole lot of people who are faced with sort of extremely painful grief and loss who are not processing it well right and you know and Allie kind of represents this escape from it or this desire to escape from it and and monty hadn't really i mean like you know like there's that that scene where he's talking to uh that episode a while back where he's talking to jasper and he says you know i'm not fine but like really for the most part, he, he seems to have been fine and he wasn't directly sort of mourning anything. So I think it kind of brings him into that, which is probably going to be important. And I think for Octavia too, I mean, I think one other, one other thing that occurred to me while we were talking is that, so for Octavia, I mean, I think in addition to kind of just like on a personal level, reminding her, you know, that she has, um, these connections to these people and that she needs to stick around and take care of them. Also, interestingly, is this, this might be the first time that Octavia has been personally present and directly involved in a situation where someone really faced an impossible choice that they had to make. And if you think about like the way that Octavia has judged other people, particularly Bellamy and Clark for those choices. Last season, Clark with Tondisi. And this season, Bellamy with the uh, ground massacre. So I wonder if part of what's happening, too, is Octavia having a realization, you know, like she was kind of involved in Time DC, but she wasn't there for the, for the decision. You know, she just saw the results and she hated the results. And in this case, she had to watch Monty make this choice and kill someone in front of her and see how awful it was for him and see that it was the best choice and the worst choice simultaneously. And I wonder if that isn't a little piece of it, too, for Octavia, for her arc. Sort of, like, forcing Octavia to face up to, like, there actually are situations that are not black and white. That you just have to accept that someone else has done something that is terrible and maybe all you can do is accept and continue to love and understand them or something. So I wonder, I don't know. I mean, like I might be pushing it too far, but I do wonder if that is also a piece of what's going on. No, there. I
0: think, I think that's actually, I think that's a really good point. You know, when we talked about this a lot last episode for me, up until Lincoln's death, Octavia's arc was something that was working for me really, really well. Her trying to find out the place where she fit her kind of taking on this sort of spiral for Kane, her really claiming some agency. She's the secret sneaky spy because she's the girl that like lived under the floorboards, you know, like, like sort of reclaiming that and that giving her some power. And I was feeling really good about Octavia this season. And then it felt like it took this turn where Octavia was sort of on her moral high horse in some ways that felt totally not based in the narrative, you know, and, yeah, and we that. got a, a little echo of that same sort of bizarre retcon of everything Bellamy does being about Octavia yeah. A, like sort of a ghost of that a little bit came back in the first scene of this episode where, you know, Jasper takes Raven to the cave first, where everyone is still sort of hiding out after they've split up with Pike and Kane in the last episode and Right. Um and, and we, she yells
1: at Bellamy and it's that same sort of accusation and like they released that scene early and it
0: was so frustrating out of context. Yeah,
1: I was I was, that was it like it seemed like it was gonna be it was oh, I'm ready be to be, be mad thing. again,
0: you know and I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: which which is like so weird, you know, and I think like I, I'm less annoyed by that now that I know that That was, like, at least largely there to set up Octavia's arc involving her almost leaving and then having to decide to stay. Which does also tell us that, like, yes, we're not meant to think that she's 100% right. Like, we are not supposed to be – like, hers is not the correct perspective. She's, like, maybe partly right. Like, what she says to Bellamy – part of what she says to Bellamy is – right in that it is echoed by other characters later on you know the thing about like you were upset you were hurt and you're upset and angry and when you're angry you lash out and people get hurt they die like that part i think was supposed to be like that is true that's sort of echoed later by jasper and in other places but that the rest of it that her attitude towards him or sort of like rejection of him i think maybe even her saying you know like you're not one of the good guys him saying what do i have to do to be on your side and she says you're not one of the good guys i think like maybe that that like that disconnect was deliberate, right? Like the idea is like, he's saying I'm on your side. He's not saying he's a good guy. He's saying like, we're all on the same side. And she still has this idea, this like sort of like idealistic notion of a good guys that exists that obviously like the show is just, is like, you know, we get that last line, like maybe there are no good guys. Like that's the lesson that Octavia had to learn. Yes. I think
0: I totally agree. And so in the context of this episode, we see in this episode it makes yeah. all the difference. And it even, I think, undoes some of my frustration at the way it was handled last episode because it seems clear that the, the narrative is not with Octavia in those things that she's saying. That, like, the narrative is not yeah, saying yeah. the objectively correct she's thing. Too, yeah,
1: she's too rigid. I mean, she's way too rigid, and she is, always yeah, has yeah.
0: been. And, yeah. and she's, she and, and I think that's, I think having that, Having that coming from both her and Kane, who are both people who have at times in the past been very morally black and white, it makes you sort of feel like, okay, so we're hearing these things about who Bellamy is as a person from these people who are sort of drawing these very hard lines about what it means to be good. And I think that Octavia being set up by the show in many ways to be sort of the moral conscience makes you, the audience, sort of instinctively not question it. But Yeah. yeah, many of those things that she's saying, it's like, well, that doesn't feel like the story that this show has been telling. And so I yeah. was really comforted to see that we're being given that really aggressively rigid moral black and white drawing of lines between her and Bellamy as being about her and not the yeah. show telling us who Bellamy is. Because that was how it felt yeah. last week. and And I felt like. This episode, I, in some ways, turned that whole kind of thing on its head because it's about Octavia's inability to see nuance and Octavia's yeah. difficulty forgiving her seeing things only from her own point of view. Like yeah. when she tells Monty, Lincoln was my people, sort of effectively rejecting what he says about we're your people. I don't think it occurs to her that that's hurtful. I think, I think that's how she really feels, you know, she feels like, and, and she is still actively grieving and you can forgive a lot when a person is in the middle of, you know, like she just watched Lincoln get shot. Of course she's still fucked up. But, but I think that, I think that this episode opening the door for her to remember that she's part of the team of the hundred is the only plausible for who she is as a person path back towards her remembering that she also belongs with Bellamy and I think that Bellamy's language and that scene that they have at Mount Weather about you'll always fit in with me I think that language is really significant that I that it's about it's about fitting in it's about belonging it's about her even before Lincoln died about her feeling like she doesn't have a place and and the only reminder of where her place is that's compelling enough to sort of get through that black and white, you know, right, wrong, good guys, bad guys mentality that she has is something like what happened with Monty, you know, is, is the stakes being that high again. And because like you said, it was Jasper getting speared that sort of solidified their bond in the beginning. You know, they've always been people who can put aside their grievances or petty frustrations or whatever, when there's an actual emergency, like what these kids do is they are like, okay, we're gonna put the fight on pause because we have to save somebody's life right now. And then we're gonna come back and we're gonna hash this out later. But like right now, we have to, you know, Clark and Raven have to call a truce and save Finn's life. You know, like yeah, that's right, Like exactly. they like exactly. that's who these people are. You have are. to like
1: set aside, you have to decide, okay, like, like who is the most important to you. Right. And set everything else aside. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like just just focus on that that central thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I think that This episode, bringing those stakes back down to the level of all these people, you know, like the sort of macro story of everybody trying to save Raven, who is totally one of their own. And then the sub story within that story of Octavia and Monty is sort of about, you know, recentering them all focused towards each other. And I so I think that, you know, for Octavia to forgive Bellamy or even to begin to sort of understand Bellamy is a longer journey. But I think that yeah. if the first step of that is her at least not just consenting to be on the same team, but being the person who says it first. You know, that that when, yeah. when Raven is, you know, says, like, I know why Allie wants to stop me because, you know, I'm the only person who knows that the second AI can destroy the first AI. Like, I know how to kill Allie, basically. And then the fact that it's Octavia who says, let's fucking do it. Like strap yeah. in, let's we ride. We survive together. We survive yeah. together. And, and yeah. then calling that line back and that perfect, beautiful little moment of eye contact and that kind of tiny nod that Monty gives her, like Monty acknowledging that she's she heard using, him, that she heard him, like that what he said got through. And that it says true when she says it, as it was when he said it to her. Like that, that really is who they are. And there's a
1: tiny, tiny moment of eye contact between Bellamy and Octavia too. Again,
0: this episode is not about forgiveness, right?
1: You know, I think it's really important that no one in this episode has gotten forgiven. Yes, Uh, like those words are never spoken, and I don't think it's ever really offered. Like the closest is, is Jasper and Clark, but not really. But we. So this isn't about forgiveness. This is about acceptance. And so when, when Octavia looks at Bellamy, it's like this he's not forgiven, you know, like it's not fixed, it's not okay, it's not repaired. But she's saying, like, I accept
0: you, and we still have a connection. Yeah. She's not severing something. It's a truce. You know, it's it's, yeah, it's yeah. saying that, like she's saying that her anger at Bellamy in this moment is less important than the thing they all have to do together. What always tends to sort of be the way those stories play out in, you know, in the show is that, you know, they sort of, they put their personal baggage with each other on hold. They go, you know, save a life or whatever. And then when they come back to have that conversation or hash those things out, whatever it is that they've been through together fundamentally changes the tone of that conversation and breaks down some of those walls between them because it's a life or death situation. I'm so hopeful about the direction that they're headed over the course of this season that we're going to end in some position of moving a little bit more actively towards reconciliation, but in a way that feels really earned, like that feels rooted in who they are and who they are to each other. That's rooted in, you know, in everything that's happened. And I think the thing that I loved the most about this episode is how hard it worked to make sure that we didn't forget anything that has ever happened to any of these characters or that they've done to each other. And like that every, I mean, every death that you feel like the show has forgotten about or every reason that somebody is mad at somebody else all had this huge weight. So then the moving through it, like not past it, but sort of moving a little bit through it feels real. And it also feels lasting. It feels like this is a permanent significant step forward in their relationship Because no one is pretending like that person didn't do that thing. You know, nothing's getting whitewashed. It's like the opposite. It's like everything is being, you know, stripped down to the bare bones and just laid raw. Like the things that these people say to each other, you know, and the things that they're forced to face when Ali, you know, takes over speaking for Raven. And the, the sort of hard, ugly truths about each other that they then have to kind of muscle through um is, is something that the whole show all season has been needing these moments, you know, and so yeah. we, so we get them and then now we can move in a different direction because it's nothing's hanging in the air anymore. Like it, it feels it feels like a really good, like cleansing, cathartic fight, you know, like when right, you're, when you're, right, you're right, mad right. at someone that you love and you're holding on to something and it's simmering and it's frustrating, you know, and you're sort of boiling over and then you finally have to just like, you know, say it out loud and you know, yell and throw things or whatever. And then you kind of get out of your system, you know, like it's so clear the air yeah, and, right. and they, and these characters haven't had the good cathartic air clearing fights that they've been needing to have for some of the accommodations of them since Mount Weather, some of them, you know, or since the culling or since things that happened in season one or for Bellamy and Octavia, I think in some ways, the sort of ongoing fight they've been having about Bellamy and Pike all season long, but it was like everything that needs to get said got said. And so you feel like where they land at the end of this episode with Octavia rallying the team, it makes you feel like, Everyone has sort of crossed over a bridge onto the other side of something in a way that feels really organic, not too neat and tidy, not wrapped up in a bow, not too shiny and perfect. Like it's all like everything's still kind of a mess, but everyone has cleared a hurdle in some way. I agree. Do you want to talk about Nyla?
1: Sure. Let's talk about Nyla. In fact, I got a question this week from Tumblr user Midnight Overlord. Hello, I was wondering, would you mind discussing Nyla's dad being in the peacekeeping army? It's rather weird since Indra recruited around Arcadia and the outpost is an Ice Nation. Plus Asgada Warriors were near Arcadia, that wouldn't have gone over well. So my my sort of initial answer to that question is that I don't think that there is an answer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like like yeah. really actually. I think probably that we'll never get an answer to that and whatever you want to headcanon is probably fine. I mean, I would guess a real answer might be something like the army, while perhaps primarily tree crew, is a coalition army. So it's probably like NATO troops, you know, or right, right, like right, might right. be like 90% tree crew. And then there's like one, you know, like battalion from Asgard or something like
0: that. Is Nyla, is she Ice Nation or does she just live in Ice Nation territory?
1: Yeah, that's not really clear either. I don't think they say. Because and it's, and she, it seems like she's. It kind of seems like she doesn't really have a particular. Yeah.
0: That, strong. I mean,
1: like she seems like one of those in between characters. Like she, yeah. she has a trading post because she kind of moves among different groups of people and among right. and into different territories. And we know that she's pretty close to the border. Right. So I mean, it's also totally possible that she that like her family is tree crew. That's kind of what I and, thought.
0: I interpreted it, and this may just sort of be, like, extrapolating from, like, the tension between her and Rowan um in the premiere, that she has sort of an uneasy truce with but is not of Ice Nation and that yeah. she's situated there geographically and that they sort of let her alone because she's you know they have a trading post and she and her father are providing a you know a service but that she doesn't appear loyal to them and we don't like we don't know much about Nyla but we know that her mom died at Mount Weather and we know that there was that there were Ice Nation granders in Mount Weather because Echo was there but the majority of them I think were not. You know, the right. majority of them seem to be Lex's people. Right. So it, it feels logical to me to assume that we're meant to believe on some level that these are not of the clan of Ice Nation, that they've sort of set up shop in that territory for, you know, kind of whatever reason, but that like ethnically, culturally, tribally, that they're of Lex's alliance. That was sort of my right. feeling right. based that on was- that.
1: That was my assumption as well. I mean, like, I, yeah, I, I think that's probably the best explanation yeah. that they're just kind of like, they're kind of like on the margins, sort of in between, but maybe like officially tree crew. Like, you know, if they, if they were going to be mustered into an army, it would be tree crew. Right. But I mean, I think honestly, the, the real answer to- to that question, you know, like there's a the, we can kind of like come up with an in-world answer, but I think obviously the real answer to that question is just that that's there in order to, again, like, and this is one of the things that this episode does so well, is to to really ground the stakes of what Bellamy did in 3A in a single person, in their experience and, and the ramifications of his actions for a person, you know, with whom he has to interact who's sort of like emotional experience of what that deed meant, you know, he has to reckon with and we get to see as a character. Like, I mean, maybe it's a little kind of fuzzy to say that her dad was in the army, but I think that I thought that was a really, really beautiful decision that they made. Like I that was like it. a really, yeah.
0: really like really effective way to use that character. I was so excited that she came back. I I was really thrilled that we yeah. had not seen last year because I thought that she was, you know, I thought she was terrific in the premiere. I loved her chemistry with Clark. I loved her as a character. And, you know, and, and you and I had talked like when we, we made our sort of, you know, big rundown of serious predictions that we then updated after the premiere. And, and one of the things that was sort of on our like list of things to watch was Nyla having one of the dropship wristbands. And yeah. we had such a long time without that having any payoff that I had sort of moved it to my list of like, random things that seem to have gone nowhere. And so from the moment that in the previous episode that Raven ha- makes a connection that the wristbands are the thing that can save them, and then, you know, Jaha and Allie find that out, I was like, okay, so what's going to happen is Jaha's going to take a mile, and there's only one left in the whole entire world that Jaha doesn't know about. Yes, we're going to get Nyla back. <laughs> so I was prepared to be excited, even if the only narrative purpose that she served was just being the person who has, like, the world's last wristband. But the fact right. that they found a way to integrate her into the story in a way that wasn't just, you know, she has the MacGuffin and also we need a place to hide out that Jaha and Allie don't know. That would have been fine. Like that would have served in a plot purpose. But that they also tied her in so deeply into the emotional weight of it was really unexpected. And I thought just so yeah. lovely, you know, and and the way that that puts Clark sort of in the middle of having to. Not mediate exactly, but but trying to bridge between both of these people who are on opposing sides of this incredibly violent conflict, and, and sort of show everyone again like the human face of it. Like, like once again, and to have Clark do it the
1: way that Clark does—that she always does—and another thing, I'm so glad that she got called out on. Clark, you know, like, and and Clark's sort of mode of negotiating those kind of difficult situations is to just hide information from other people in order to manage their feelings. Right. You know, like she did that to to Bellamy with Tondisi when she didn't tell him that Octavia was there. Yeah. So he wouldn't worry. This is something that Clark has done over and over again. Right. And so this is in another series of sort of like things that have become patterns with characters that I wasn't even sure anymore that they were totally like aware were patterns getting called out making me really happy. That was one of them. So Nyla is this like perfect character to, to sort of ha- have a perspective that allows her to sort of articulate issues or embody issues that have been really sort of abstract or ignored and then could just kind of like make them concrete and make them textual issues that now our characters have to sort of face and cope with,
0: you know, on one level of the story with one very specific slice of it, she served the same function that later Allie possessing Raven serves in a broader context, where exactly. there's there's the thing, yeah. the things that nobody is saying out loud are now being said out loud in a way where both the characters and us, the audience and the narrative, have to now reckon with them. That they're no longer we can yes. no longer escape them. Although yes. you and I right. did have exactly. as we were sort of watching the episode again. That we had a little bit of a different perspective, I think, on what specifically Clark means. Like, when when Nyla says, my father was killed by the Sky Crew Army, and Clark says, that wasn't us. And I think that there's a couple different potential ways to interpret that. I actually that. think that those are, I, I actually don't think that those are mutually exclusive, though. I no, think that
1: you could argue that that when she says that, she both means, like... She's just trying to, like, avoid conflict, you know, so she's kind of lying right. to Nyla because she does know what she means. But I think she also is saying it wasn't us because she, like you said, like, she truly doesn't believe that that was Bellamy. It's yeah. kind of like a follow-up on the that was not you moment. I think that probably both of those things are true simultaneously.
0: I think so, too, yeah. But I think that that yeah. is a really important moment of her calling back what she says to Bellamy in episode five when she says like this isn't you and so watching that episode both times I did not read that as Clark thinking that she was lying
1: I think you're right maybe like I and that's maybe actually the biggest point and like why what Nyla says to Clark at the end yeah hits so hard when she says you didn't give me that chance because like I think you're right I don't think Clark realizes that she's you know what I mean like I think she means that she's making a call back to Bellamy and she's trying to smooth things over. I think she's not really conscious of the extent
0: to which she's manipulating. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, and I, that's true of Clark. Like, she yeah, just does it. You know, yeah. she doesn't think about it. I think that Nyla being a person who, like, she's playing no games. Nyla's just saying her shit, you know? And, and yeah. I think in a series of relationships where so much of the conflict in the story is driven by things that people are not saying to each other. Or things that sort of simmering below the surface and then not coming out. For Nyla to be as blunt as she is with both Clark and Bellamy is really important because it just peels all of the layers away and it just it just lays bare the real heart of the fact that these were real people. It, It helps flesh out the piece that's always been missing about this Grounder Massacre is feeling it as sort of more of an abstraction. You know, I think cinematically and artistically and kind of production design-wise, they went, like we talked about, you know, a very sort of Game of Thrones direction with it. We see Octavia picking her way through a field of dead bodies, you know, and it's on a huge scale, you know, and to a degree that almost makes you numb to it in some ways, like the sort of onslaught of, like, mass death. We see the stakes of it in things like Indra, you know almost being dead and the kind of continued follow-up between Bellamy and Octavia but the actual death of those 300 people narratively were sort of curiously emotionally removed from who those people were and I
1: think it's significant that the only person up until now the only person that we knew as an audience survived we never got a face in that among those dead on that field right that was somebody that we had met before right you know so the only lens that we got into it was was Indra talking about it and you know like and obviously like it's horrifying enough and i and clearly it is because there's plenty of people who are just like you know that's it you know like i felt sort of weirdly detached like this doesn't really right. feel like a real thing to yeah. me well, you know like I have all the time getting mad at bellamy about it because it feels so like they were all
0: red shirts
1: yeah exactly the show really hasn't had red shirts in that way in the first 2 seasons yeah not that there weren't like red shirts but like like even when even when bellamy killed the guard you know choked out the guard in Mount Weather Like that guy wasn't a red shirt because we met his son later that episode. Like those deaths have always had those personal stakes basically every time. And this season, one thing that is really, that really changed in the first half is that they lost that. Like, the yes. ambassador that Alexa kicked out the window. No personal stakes. He's just like a guy who's an asshole and then he's dead. You well, know, and that, Naya. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Who who we were sort of led to believe was going to be this really significant character. And she's got basically one episode. She had two or three scenes. And then she dies at the end of it. And, and, and nobody ever
1: mentions it again. Yeah, nobody like, mentions that, it again. And then that stupid thing in 308 where Bellamy shoots the messengers at the beginning. Yes. And that's it. Like, he shoots them out of nowhere and yeah. it never comes up again. You yeah. know, like, we don't know who they are. We don't even see their faces. They're wearing masks. Yeah. And then he shoots them and then no one ever mentions it again. It's not a thing. It will never be a thing. You know, so like this the show has been sort of like weirdly killing characters without personal stakes or without those kind of stakes in a way that it hadn't before. Yeah, that's so that's the biggest nice change. Yeah, exactly. So I think like this was, it was also sort of nice to come back around in some ways, it's way too late. But I think that's one reason why it was so it felt so good for Nyla to have a connection to that massacre, and to be able to embody and say to Bellamy and sort of confront him with what you did has meaning to people. You know, like right. on multiple levels, you know, like it means something personal to her because she lost her father. It means something personal to her because those were her people that, you know, she says, like, so you destroyed your, my people. You know, it really brings home for us what that massacre meant in a way that it never had before because it had always been talked about in these kind of like big abstractions of like, such and such number, you know, like you killed the army or like, well, I was just doing it to save my people, whatever that means, right, you know, like right. my people, my people again, that thing where like my people becomes this like gigantic abstraction that we never really are attached to. And I think that one thing that, that happens, I think it happens a bunch of times through this episode. I think, and I think maybe this is, I kind of hope it's deliberate because it's, it's really well done. But like what they're doing is they're taking that abstraction of my people and they're grounding it in, in individuals again. In a way that kind of like shows all the complications and the messiness that, that that phrase my people so like completely papers over. Bellamy can talk about protecting his people all he wants because doing that allows him to forget that other human beings are going to experience loss and grief because he was trying to avoid experiencing loss and grief. You know, a similar thing kind of happens when when Clark is apologizing to Jasper, and she says to him, like, I'm sorry, I was just trying to save my people. And she says that to Jasper. The problem for Jasper is that Maya was his people. Yeah. You know, she's saying she has this, like, sort of this very contained and neat idea of saving my people, and Jasper complicates that because his allegiances
0: aren't that neat and tidy clerk's reiteration of you know the choices that she was making for her people and the things that she was doing and like every time we heard her say that and that came up again when she was in polis it felt so jarring because we didn't have any sense that she was in any way connected to what was really happening to her people she had no idea how bad things were and and even after she went back home and saw how bad things were the very next thing that we see is her, you know, is it like is the sketching scene, is her sort of like having this like lovely domestic quiet moment with Lexa. And the last thing that we had seen happen in the episode before is her like begging her mom to come with her because she's beginning to realize Arcadia is in danger. So just the right, the, right. the gap between what Clark knows and doesn't know about what is happening to the people that she claims are her people has been startling in some moments. And this episode gave me, I think, some comfort that some of those things were maybe deliberate. People were disconnected for character reasons and not just that the narrative was disconnected.
1: I, I agree. That's probably true. I think it's probably a combination of things. I think it's partly deliberate and then partly also just because, like, frankly, there were t- Telling Lex's story. Like, I think it was partly intentional, but I also think that, like, it didn't really work yeah. because it went on too long. I agree. So there's, like, a bunch of complicated stuff, but I think it was at least partly intentional. And, I and you know, my friend Nell has pointed out, too, there's, like, a similar, weirdly, a similar problem in Arcadia with Bellamy and Pike because they talk about my, our people a lot. But like, we never see Arcadians, you know, like we don't really have
0: any stronger sense of those people. Well, and it's like, it's like the election thing all over again, where it's like, we don't have a lens into how the people of Arcadia are feeling. We know how our heroes are feeling about things. And we know that there is, apart from our heroes, this whole block of people who voted for and now support Pike, but we're not narratively in their heads at all. So we don't really know. we don't have an everyman character
1: to like tell us, you know, it's like. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it does it it feels like I think recentering this episode so emphatically on the delinquents and making their relationships to each other and all of the sort of the damage that they've been through and and their past and the people that they've lost so present, I think is a really concrete reminder of who, yeah. who your people are. You know, who are those yeah. people? And, and what are, what is your sort of collective obligation to and each other? And also sort
1: of forcing them, and also forcing them over and over again, I think, to, and forcing us as audience, as the audience, along with the characters, to really think about who your people are. Yeah. You know, so like, so that, so that when you say, I did it, you know, I think we see that with Octavia, certainly. Um, but even with like, like Monty and Clark and Bellamy, I think there's a kind of like being confronted with, um, having to face someone who has a different or a slightly different definition of that forces you to sort of like think about what it means to say, my people. Yeah. Yeah. I was protecting my people. And what that really means is that my people versus your people, you know, so I think right. that, that line that Nyla right. says, you know, he says, I was, I was trying to protect my people and she says, by just, dist- Mine. I think that's a really, really good reminder of the kind of like the zero sum logic behind that claim,
0: right? Um, well, and we've heard that before. Like Lexa says that exact thing to Clark, and and that Emerson also kind of calls Clark out on that too. Like that the idea of you know I'm protecting my people always means that somebody else's people are going to get screwed. The good
1: thing yeah, I think this this episode does with that, which I really I was. Getting a little like kind of uncomfortable about because I didn't really know where they landed, but I think they did a good job in this episode of balancing the uh, of, and this is like, and again, this goes back to season one and the way that they used to be so good at taking these like really morally complicated situations and kind of dwelling in the ambiguity of them. Yeah. And I think this, this episode does it, you know, because it doesn't, it doesn't vilify anybody. It just shows you, it, you know, it doesn't say like, I think we don't wind up thinking like, Bellamy is an evil guy because he's trying to protect his people. You're just reminded that trying to be the good guy is perhaps in and of itself a morally, can be like a morally compromising thing because you have to choose to whom you're the good guy. And that's always going to mean being the bad guy to somebody else. And if you just sort of like focus on, if you get too like, you know, focused on being the good guy in your own definition and forget what that means to other people, like maybe that's where the moral line is, you know, that's the thing you kind of can't lose sight of. And so I think I, I really, really liked the fact that we had someone like Nyla, who's like, you know, who's sort of like on the other side, but not. Uh, you know, but like not going to like fight them about it or whatever. But, but that, that, and that she doesn't forgive Bellamy, you know, he just sort of has to face like, this is the meaning of what you did. And this is what your actions produced, you know, people suffer and you have to remember that it's just that, that people everywhere suffer and it's not just your people. Yeah. And again, it goes back to like, this is not an episode about forgiveness. It's an episode about, Acceptance. It's an episode about facing that. And now the next step is having to learn how to, how to deal with it or how to atone
0: for it. But we're not
1: like in a situation again where it's like good guy, bad guy. It's like actions have consequences.
0: And that's, I think, one of the things that I really liked so much about the way that this episode felt like all of the things that season one did right, like all the things that, that hooked us all into this show in the first place were really vibrant and present in this episode in a a brand new way that we haven't had really all season long. And it was because the consequences of every action and not just of this season, but of everything that's happened since a hundred hit the ground was put in front of us in the context of how it affects these half a dozen people. So the things that we're dealing with the fallout of included not just The Grounder Massacre and Lincoln's death between Bellamy and Octavia, but also there was so much really important processing of Mount Weather. One of the things that I thought that I have really loved about this season so far that has worked for me on a lot of levels and in a way that I think doesn't necessarily get enough credit for how beautifully it's been handled is Jasper's PTSD is so important. The way that the show has not shied away from presenting how ugly and hard and difficult Jasper's emotional trauma is not just for Jasper, but for everybody around Jasper, you know. Because that's how it works. You know, like that is it's frustrating sometimes to kind of hear sort of the narrative around in, you know, in some corners of, you know, the audience or the fandom talking yeah. about how like Jasper's super annoying and like, oh my God, well he's stuff whining. And it's like, wait a minute though, like he's been through some shit. And and everyone copes in different ways. And what we're seeing is that Jasper is a person with the fewest kind of exterior filters between his inner emotional turmoil and the world. He can't put the mask on and sort of soldier on and keep going the way other people have, who have had things to distract them from that grief, who have had like, I've got to put on the mask and go do a thing. And, and I got to right. suck it up, you know, like, like Raven throwing herself into work or Clark and Melby be having to be leaders. Monty, I think just ha- being a more private person who keeps those things deep inside. And Jasper lets it all hang out and it's really yeah. ugly. And that's so important. And, and, you know, and we talked about in the last, you a know, couple episodes, like Jasper kind of getting his mojo back and Jasper facing his trauma by looking it in the eye and attempting to sort of use that for the benefit of somebody else. Like when he really steps into the Raven story and and becomes a person with a huge amount of narrative agency again, you know, really becoming a hero, I think is wonderful. And what I love about this episode is that once again, Jasper is facing really hard shit. For some of the other characters, it takes either like evil, you know, ally possessed Raven or Nyla, like six sort of outside characters and outside forces to sort of shove them into having these emotional confrontations. And Jasper doesn't need that. Like Jasper working his shit out with Clark. He's just there right away. Yeah. His evolution in his relationship with Clark from the beginning of this episode to the end of this episode, without necessarily needing the outside intervention of the, objective from the outside character saying the thing that you have to then talk about you know, like he he confronts clark about things that he's been holding on to for a long time and you sort of forget i think how long has it been since jasper and clark talked to each other it's been since mount weather it's been months because she yeah, leaves like three
1: or four months it's been yeah yeah, yeah. Which, and- which I think is interesting because, like, because Jasper, I also like that after Jasper kind of like got his mojo back last week, you know, he's back to being fucked up this week because that's also yeah. very true to PTSD. You know, yeah. like it's not like a, a a direct trajectory. It's not like I'm better now, right? Than right. today, so i better forever. You know, so I did like that it kind of came back. But I mean, it's interesting because it it can be a little jarring potentially to see Jack Jasper be so angry and so vitriolic. Oh. At Clark and be okay with Bellamy. Like Bellamy, interestingly, is the person who can calm him down. Bellamy is the person who keeps, like, you know, puts yeah. his hand on his shoulder and says, "Like, calm down and tell us what's happening." You know, and of course, Bellamy pulled that lever too. But I think what's going on there is like Jasper had three months with Bellamy. Yeah, Bellamy's been Bellamy there. in the face every day, and yeah. like, yeah, he was a he was he was like a brat to him in, in three hundred one, but he clearly like could deal with him. You know, like he could yeah. talk to him. So he's kind of like not if not fully made his peace. You know, like he's, he's sort of worked to the point where like Bellamy is clearly someone he trusts again, or at least is okay with. And I think what that, I think it's interesting that kind of tells us that maybe what happened is that, you know, in the interim, because Clark wasn't there, she becomes the person on whom he sort of centers all of his anger and despair and, and blame. You know, like she becomes, because she wasn't present, she just left and he couldn't deal with her, and she couldn't apologize or whatever. You know, he sort of like fixates on her, and so the moment that she she arrives, I think it's almost as if as if like her seeing her rips off that bandage again. Yeah, you know, like seeing her, it's a new trigger. He got used to seeing Bellamy and Monty all the time, but seeing Clark kind of seems to like remind him. It sort of seems to make it new again in a way that it maybe hadn't been in a while. So I think that's really interesting. You know, and that's and it's like great for Clark obviously too, for her, because this is the thing that she's been running from. Like the reason that she didn't come back is like, you know, I think in her nightmares were, this you know, what, what Jasper says to her this episode. I think it makes sense that that Jasper, that that happens with Jasper. And I think it's like a really, per again, like one of those perfect things. Like, here's the thing that Clark has been running from crystallize in a character whom she has
0: to face, you know, yeah. will we'll say the things that have been subtextual. The, this is the thing that she was afraid of. That was the reason why she could not, which she still has not done, walk back through the gates of Arcadia. Like, this was, it was these conversations. It was this kind of thing. It was people looking at her in this way, you know, and, and so, and so I think that that's so important, you know, and and when he kind of says to her, the tail end of last episode, the sort of the joke about, like, you really are the angel of death. He says some, like, really shitty stuff, but he does make her get in the car. So it's like, he instinctively, without even thinking about it, is not going to let Clark get hurt. So he'll yell at her and he will freeze her out and he will say ugly, hostile things to her, but he will not drive away. And that, I think, in some ways, I think is is a perfect little microcosm for all of the emotional unpacking and processing that is brought forth and then kind of moving towards resolution that happens in this episode is that yeah. anger is different from hate. The anger does not cut out their connection it just sort of blinds them to it in some ways but that Jasper doesn't even think about like he's like get in the car get in the car get in the car get in the car and then like once she's in the car and they're safely driving away like now I'll yell at you you know yeah
1: it's like and again it's like goes back to that it's it's not forgiveness but it's acceptance you know or sort of like acceptance that we still have a relationship that's important you know and I think it's really again like the scene the confrontation where she apologizes is so moving and oh so important. Oh, God, I love that You know, that and scene. she's yeah. crying. And, and like you said, like when we were watching, I, I thought it was so great that you pointed out that he's like stunned. He he expected her to fight with him, not apologize to him. My- he's a little bit taken aback and a little bit, you know, like it's, it's this really awkward moment for both of them because yeah. I think like she hopes that apologizing will heal things. And he kind of doesn't know how to deal with her saying, I'm sorry, they come to this impasse where she's like, I had no other choice. And he says, I was going to save everybody. And she says, I wish that that was true. That sort of like beautiful, emotionally difficult moment, I think where they I didn't I love that they didn't shy away from and this goes back to the season one stuff. They didn't shy away from the fact that this is for the for that moment. It's an impasse. Yeah, you know, like being sorry isn't enough. Neither of them are really wrong. You know, like, Clark isn't wrong. We know that. And, and Jasper isn't wrong. It's just that, like, emotionally, like, it's not enough for her to be sorry, you know? Yeah. Because that's how grief is, right? Like, yeah. it's not enough to be sorry. Maya's still dead.
0: Maya's still and dead. But Jasper was- still hasn't accepted that, that she didn't have a choice. There's such a huge amount of, self-recrimination in jasper's guilt and grief and and i think in some ways the piece of his grief that is healed over the course of this episode is the part where jasper believed that if he had just been given the chance that he could have saved maya and everybody else and so as angry as he is at clark and also i think the the really specific way that he funnels his sort of feelings of betrayal towards Monty, who he felt like he should have expected better from. But there's also so much of it that is on himself, is on his feeling like if he'd been a little faster. And so I think that the resolution that comes at the end of this scene when he watches Clark improvise and, and wing it and save Raven's life because of a thing that only she knows and a thing that only she could have done. But also done, being able you know, to do something, to do two, two things
1: to Raven. That could have killed her. That could have killed her. Because it was the only way to save her. You know, like EMP and
0: then slicing open her neck. Clark not only had the knowledge, but had the willingness. Clark's cool head under pressure in contrast with like, you know, remember when Jasper had to shoot the bomb? And like in Monty, yeah. you know, Monty came to support him and like kind of hold his hand. And everyone, you know, and Bellamy was super encouraging and everybody was like, you can do this, but also don't fuck it up or we're all going to die. Jasper is not right. cool under pressure and he never has yeah. been. Him watching Clark do the things that she does in that final scene. And when he says to her, I could never do what you do. What I really love about that moment was I felt like that's a little bit of Jasper removing from himself the pressure. Of believing that he could have done it. Like he knows now, I think in some ways, you know, that Clark Clark isn't the leader just because she's like the bossiest. She's the leader because she does things nobody else can do. And so I think him yeah him seeing and realizing I couldn't have done that thing kind of transits a little bit into it doesn't it doesn't like you said like he hasn't forgiven clark but he has i think by the end of this episode genuinely ceased to believe that it was ever in his power to stop cage wallace and that's a big moment of all the burdens that he's carrying taking that one off of his shoulders when he finally comes to terms with the fact that He's not that guy. Jasper is not the person who can slit open Raven's neck and take the AI out of it with totally, you right, know, steady exactly. hands and cool under pressure. He's not that guy, you know. Yeah. And and so it yeah. felt like the piece of closure that he really authentically got is the guilt part of it, the part that was about his own failure. And I think that that's so that's important because it isn't again Maya's still dead, and Clark and Monty and Bellamy together still killed her. Like, that happened. That all happened, and no one is pretending like it didn't. But one piece of it that was a particularly brutal and ugly thing that has probably been tormenting him in his sleep for months and months, that made him feel like he was at fault in some way, like that he had failed Maya, that piece of it, I think, we can treat as gone and that feels like real progress because it feels emotionally yeah. earned. A real significant step towards finding a way to work together again has been taken because he sees what she can do, you know, and who she really is. I mean, we get, we get some comments from him too that show that the reason he, that he blames Clark
1: is because he had been sort of assuming you know, that she was just like bossy. She just told everyone to, what to do, you know, so it's kind of on her. And so I think like that this is all kind of resolving these, these like sets of issues.
0: Yeah. Cause she um, says over and because, over again in this episode, like, you're not the boss. You're not in charge. We don't need you. We're yeah. not asking for like, your help.
1: Her, like she's just like walking in and taking charge like sort of arbitrarily or without, without earning it. And so I think, think like this is kind of a reminder that like she earned her position as their leader. Yeah. The one thing that makes me concerned about Jasper. And I'm sort of like, you talked about, I'm, I'm on the fence about Jasper's survival. There have been some like cryptic tweets, I guess, on Devin Bostick's part that don't bode well. And we know he's in the city of light at the end, which seems like it's hard to, it's hard to figure out right now, like how he winds up there, because yeah. it does seem so unlikely that anyone in that group would like voluntarily take the chip. But, but there's a couple of little things in this episode that seem like a little bit more, like less happy foreshadowing potentially. Yeah. A part of it is kind of like a less optimistic interpretation of what that means when Jasper kind of has that realization that he couldn't have saved Maya, that he couldn't have done what Clark did. And that is when, when Allie is talking to Jasper, you know, or when Raven, I guess, is, um, talking to Jasper. What she really emphasizes is his uselessness. Yeah. So she keeps talking about like Jasper, everybody's got to sort of tiptoe around Jasper. You're weak. You're useless. And what does she say? I don't even know why you bother living. Yeah. Which, you know, like that line really hit me this time. Really, really hard in that kind of like a moment of just like, oh my God, I hope Jasper doesn't kill himself. I don't think that he will, but I think maybe that's there for a reason. The things that that Raven said to him all emphasize the ways in which Jasper is ineffectual. You know, like he can't do anything. And then what he figures out with Clark is that he's been hanging out to this idea that he could have saved Maya. And what he learns is that he couldn't save her. He couldn't have done it. And so there's a part of me that wonders if there isn't more to his arc that's going to be reckoning with that feeling of ineffectiveness. Raven saying all these things to everybody this episode. We know that stuff is going to come back, you know, like yeah. we know that's all out there textually because it's going to rebound. And for Jasper, I think it's going to be all about him either learning what he's good for, what he can do, what he's in, what makes him, you know,
0: important and helpful to the group. Or potentially not, you know. You and I have had Jasper on our death predictions list since before the season started. Yeah, and, and it's been
1: sort of like waffling, you know. Yeah,
0: like, well, and and I and I think initially our projection was that he would be dead by like episode three or four, and that that it was going to be, you know, yeah. Jasper does something stupidly self destructive and gets himself killed by grounders, and that's the spark that lights the flame of this grounder war or whatever. But but that that it was going to be something that came from this sort of. Not quite actively suicidal, but borderline, this grand and flagrant, not giving a fuck. That was Jasper's sort of initial character arc. And so seeing him shift out of that, you know, because he enters the City of Light storyline as like that he wants to chip. He wants to escape. He's still in that sort of self-pitying place and that he finds his agency again through helping Raven. And so I feel like... The main reason that I still am pretty sure the Jasper is gonna die, which and this is all this may be a little bit too conspiracy theorist, but somebody on Twitter went through all of the promotional images from those marketing posters that came out before this season it was kind of talking through where the clues were embedded in those images to those characters' stories, and they've been spot on so far. So, like, Lexa is standing in front of Polis, but also in front of, which I spotted, the City of Light. Before yes. we knew that Lexa was connected to the AI, in the sort of dim background in the shot behind Lexa is both the crumbling Polis Tower and crumbling City of Light Tower. See so you and I
1: knew that Lexa was going to be attached to the yes,
0: department. we yeah we called this in November. <laughs> Other people did, but so so that so anyway, there's this really cool thread, and they went through every single thing, and they're all spot on. And Lincoln and Jasper were the two characters whose background had fire behind them, and it was just like. There was no imagery, no nothing. It was just sort of blank sky and flames. And so the person who posted this said, that seemed to be a hint that these were two characters that were going to get killed. And we obviously know that was right about Lincoln. So my wondering, like, is this going to turn out to be completely accurate down to the letter and Jasper is going to die. And this was all sort of foreshadowed in the posters, which would be crazy. But I feel very differently now about the way that I imagine that that might happen. I'm always the person who wants to read things very optimistically. And then I just get my heart broken by this show because I'm wrong. So so this may be another one (laughs) of those cases. But my read on the things that Raven says when she's possessed by Allie, first to Clark, then to Jasper, and then to Bellamy, are things that are clearly true. I mean, they're, they're ugly, awful things and they are true either factually and they're things that you just don't say out loud or they're things that are maybe not factually true but are an accurate reading on how that person feels about that thing. So they are all rooted in something. Yeah. What I want to believe about those moments, the reason that those specific particular things are being highlighted the way that they are is because what they're foreshadowing is finally saying those things out loud and facing them is how you overcome them. And and I think part of the reason that I feel really strongly about the potential that that's true is because for all of them, really, I think that reading fits really neatly into our sort of ongoing supposition about love and relationships and human connection being both a sort of actively the key to destroying the city of light and also on a secondary level choosing the people that you care about and sort of and and personal alliances and family and love over abstractions being sort of an ongoing theme of the whole season and so for Clark yeah. who who gets the crazy alley treatment first throwing in Clark's face in just the most ugly awful horrendous way possible her responsibility for not just sort of the the mass deaths at Mount Weather, but calling out by name the four people closest to her who have died that she feels in some way responsible for. And yeah. Allie telling her, you are correct in your deep, dark fears and nightmares that you are responsible for all of these deaths in a really beautiful way, you know, bringing back characters that we haven't seen in a while and haven't talked about in a while, that have been sort of very lightly and gently sort of beginning to be foreshadowed as we moved into the City of Light storyline, where you have, you know, a Wells callback, you know, Raven accusing Clark of being responsible for Wells' death because she couldn't have predicted that Charlotte was going to go crazy and kill him. And that she was, you know, that she killed Finn and, you know, and and making kind of an offhand comment about like you probably got Lexa killed too, which we all we know, like that is also how Clark feels, I think, on some level about that. And then the really, really, yeah. really huge moment to me that I just wanted to like cheer at my television, except that it was so harrowing, was the fact that <laughs> that it it culminates in Jake that we're the moment we're building yeah. up to and I just I love it it's so important to me when this show remembers how important Jake Griffin is like not just to the narrative because it's really his death that sets everything in motion but how you know in real world terms of the show Clark's father has only been dead for less than a year and a half there is no way that that is a wound that has healed yet and she just she hides it in you know in her own different ways and it isn't present at every moment but like
1: that he's he's at the core of everything that has happened on the show like jake griffin jake griffin is the starting point
0: jake griffin is like Point zero. Yes, for every event that has happened, for everything that has happened, and and ever is, since, and and is the thing that it's the original wound in Clark that has never healed. Yes, and it's yes. it's the origin point of the whole story. I was so happy that was the moment that she snapped. That was the thing that Allie said to her that she couldn't keep herself together any longer. Like the, the so when she tells Bellamy later, like I let her get to me, it's because. The dad wound is still so raw and so fresh and so painful to her, you know, that she believes herself on some level to be responsible for the death of her father and sort of showing us kind of how raw and real that is was really powerful. And, but I also think that facing those deaths and facing her own kind of complicitness in direct or indirect ways or just simply acknowledging that these were things that she was never going to be able to have prevented. I think in some way kind of similar to Jasper and Maya, like she could never have saved her dad. She could not have stopped that. And her and her sort of secret, deep, dark fear that she could have, and then the really ugly thing that Raven throws in there, which is sort of implying that Abby thinks it's Clark's fault on some level, yeah. which is the yeah. which is the part that's even worse. So twisting that knife, to me, I feel like the reason that feels important and that also for Bellamy, that Bellamy's breaking point, the part where he almost sort of begins to lose it with Raven, although he holds it longer than anyone else does, is Gina is sort of is the throwing Gina in his face and, and insulting Gina's memory by implying that Bellamy didn't really care about her in comparison to how he seems to care about Clark. That for, you know, for yeah. Regina and for Wells, Finn, Lexa, Jake, for Clark, the reminder that they've lost people that they feel in some level that they could have saved. To me, I feel like, and I don't quite know how yet, it feels like drawing a line from, from that, from all of those deaths being really present to us this season in a, in a really In a new way, you know, like there've been a number of Finn callbacks. There've been several Wells callbacks. You know, there's a lot of stuff about Abby bringing up Jake when she's talking to Kane and her wedding ring. So they've been sort of lightly floated in front of us. And to me, I feel like it's because all of the language that people use to talk about the people that they care about this season feels sort of metaphorically connected to the city of light. You know, Cain says Bellamy is the key. Bellamy says Gina was real. The words people use to talk about their loved ones, you know, are connected to this sort of idea of like keys and light and dark and reality versus non-reality you know and because like look at what what's the the breaking point for Raven when she's
1: with Allie yeah is realizing that she's forgotten Finn that what she gave up was her grief but then also her memory of love and so I think it's really important like I, I think you're totally right to like note like all the little ways that like people talk about other people in terms that sort of echo the city of light. But I think, you know, like these are also all people that they loved and cared about whom they're grieving. And so it's also sort of reinforcing the fact that those two things are inseparable. You know, if you love someone, then you run the risk of pain, you know, like you run the risk of losing them. And that's a piece of loving is that is, is feeling that pain and, and feeling the the pain of grief. And I think, I think that's, that's also really deliberate and really important that when they're talking about like, They keep bringing back, they keep mentioning, remember all these people that you've loved and lost, you know, because I think that's, that's going to be, you know, like we keep talking about like love is the glitch in the city of light. I think that's true. That's certainly true. Love is the glitch, but it's not just love. It's the way that love necessitates pain. That's the part that Allie doesn't understand. Allie, I think, could probably understand love in a very generalized kind of sense of universal benevolence. You know what I mean? A kind of like general sense of warmth. But she doesn't understand love in terms of like attachment and attachment to particular people and the willingness to suffer and to lose a lot in order to have that feeling of connectedness. Well, I and think that's the piece of love that's maybe important. Yeah,
0: I totally agree. I, where Allie is just totally flummoxed is, is that she can't understand why Raven wants out now. She can't understand that yeah. there is something that Raven wants more than painlessness. And I also think that it's really significant that it is in realizing what is happening to Raven and that Raven has forgotten Finn that is why Jasper changes his mind about the chip because Jasper wants yeah. to not be in pain, but he he was there. But he doesn't want he to forget Maya. No, because he was there. He knows how much Finn yeah. meant to Raven. He watched that yeah. relationship play out. He knows yeah. how much she loved him.
1: I think it's also significant that Jasper is the character who has clung the most tightly.
0: To his lost loved one. Everyone else
1: has kind of pushed it away. You know, like to some degree in some way or another. Everyone else has run from it or pushed it away or or done something to try to avoid feeling grief. And like Jasper, you know, he's drinking, so he tried to avoid the pain. But Jasper's like the only one who really clung to that clung to his grief you know yeah. and like and this was what this was the problem that he had but it makes him it sets him apart from someone like Clark who ran away or even Bellamy I think let's think about this earlier because the title of the last the two-part finale came out oh what is it perverse instantiation perverse instantiation refers to an issue with AI where basically the AI achieves whatever goal or directive that you gave it but in a way that is unexpected and disastrous so the example that that they give is you ask the ai to make people smile and it intervenes on their facial muscles or neurochemicals instead of via their happiness so you ask them to make Mm. a smile because what you want is for them to make the person happy and they say well they they interpret it as you just want them their face to make a smile right Right. so Mm. i think that's really interesting perverse instantiation i was thinking about this I think it's really interesting to think about in terms of like perverse instantiation as a problem that humans have as well. You know, like very clearly Allie is a case of perverse instantiation. Her directive is to make life better. And the way that she's decided to do that is a drop a bunch of bombs. And then B sort of like hijack everyone to the city of life. right? But I think like you can think about that also in terms of the ways that that characters have be- been behaving this season. Bellamy deciding that he in you know, order he wants to he wants to protect his people. He wants to prevent further loss of life and further grief, and he does that by slaughtering an army. You know, like he does that by doing something that produces even further and worse consequences. Right. And you can sort of see like a pattern of that sort of like Raven takes the, the chip because she wants to escape her pain. And that has all these unintended bad uh, consequences. Abby takes the chip to try to save Raven. And that has all sorts of disastrous consequences. Yeah. That kind of pattern, you see it over and over again. And then and that's all wrapped up as well in this issue of loving someone or caring about someone or some group of people necessarily involving pain and loss. And what people do, the desperate measures people take to avoid either feeling it, or to avoid ever experiencing it again are like pretty much across the board disastrous on the show. And I think that's maybe not an accident. I think that's maybe going to come back around with this alley in the city of light is that learning that you have to take the pain with the, yeah. With the
0: love. Well, and that's, and I, I totally agree. And I, and I think that it's really important that it is Raven who is at the heart of this story because Raven, yeah. Raven is, is one of the people who, whose loss and grief and pain are both emotional and physical. And so we can see them and un- and process them and understand it in a tactile, physical way that you can't with yeah. other characters, yeah. you know, like the Ra- Raven's losses are physical and emotional and the scars run really deep. And because her, you know, her grief and loss of Finn and the trauma that she's been through is really intimately connected to the physical things that happen to her body they're manifested in a different way and made super, super explicit. And and so her being the person who is in some ways sort of the most vulnerable, you know, to Jaha and to Ali and and then is used the most effectively as a weapon against everybody else. When she says to Jasper, We all lost people and you don't see like all yeah. the rest of us crying about it. And this thing that we talked about before we were watching the episode, like there are some really, really, really interesting questions. In that scene, which is one of my favorite scenes of this entire show, Evil Raven dropping tooth bombs left and right on everybody, there are some real questions about when she's being Allie and when she's being Raven, or or what is the origin of the things that she is saying? Is it Allie making a calculation about what is the most effective way to get her own way? Or is it Allie digging into real things that Raven has thought or real things that Raven has observed other people thinking about themselves and sort of weaponizing those because her challenging Jasper, why do you get to just kind of stop living because of your own grief when everybody is wounded and everyone is fucked up and we're all carrying all this stuff and the rest of us don't have the luxury of being able to stop living Because we are so sad. It's a particularly ugly thing to say. And I think that it really, like you said before, it taps into sort of Jasper's fears of his own uselessness. But it also, I think, is in its own way kind of accidentally really illuminating about Raven, who doesn't feel like she gets to grieve. And that she, like Raven has never felt like she has had, and and really because she hasn't, had the time or had the ability or the sort of space To really grieve Finn or really grieve the loss of her physical ability that she feels so limited and like she feels so, um, she also feels like useless and helpless. And, and she's kind of projecting that, I think, a little bit onto Jasper. But so it's this really sort of accidental, I think, revelation into Raven's relationship with her own grieving even though she took this chip to forget it but she was doing that before i think just in sort of not not letting herself go to that place and so i think that the show really making explicit and textual the difference between the choices that raven has made about how she's processing the loss of finn versus the choices that jasper has made about maya i think tells us something really important about raven having to face things that she hasn't actually faced yet you know like yeah. that she has yeah. she hasn't really encountered those things head-on like god what a powerhouse episode for Lindsay morgan i mean this just oh my god incredible the whole th- i mean so scary and traumatizing and awful and parts that just felt sort of lifted right out of the exorcist you're like jesus fucking christ you know But oh, and
1: that i just can't like, like the things that she does with her voice are so amazing oh you know, my like, god yeah her- the way that she mimics Allie is incredible. Yeah, you know, like the the changes in inflection, even just like at the very end where they're about to EMP her, and she switches over to pleading, like please, please don't, please don't. You know, pleading with Sinclair that they're going to give her yeah. brain damage. Like, like the tone, like that she switches there. She sounds so genuinely like panicked and afraid and scared, and it's just like, and you haven't heard her sound like that, you know. So there's this mm-hmm. moment, this like gut punch moment. You're just like, oh my god, is that Raven? Is that you know, like yeah, I, I yeah. Mean, it's just like. It's like astonishing. Like oh my she's god. so
0: good. Yeah. Oh my god! This is your Emmy reel, Lindsay Morgan. Like oh yeah, for sure. Like it yeah. was
1: so amazing. Cool.
0: Well, one of the things that I also really loved that was sort of a beautiful lens into Raven yeah. as a person that we got in this episode was I am just loving Sinclair. Yeah, I'm loving Sinclair to a degree where I'm now convinced that he's going to die probably in the next episode, because he's so awesome and he's getting so much good material. Narratively, it doesn't make any sense for the way the story seems to be going to have a second super helpful engineer brain on the team. It feels like it's going to have to fall onto Raven's shoulders. Like That just sort of feels like the shape the story is taking in a way where Sinclair in some way, I think, is going to get taken out of play. But I feel like the, the beautiful little lens we get into their relationship, you know, when he tells Clark, like, she's all that I have left and the closest that I clearly have and, and that he keeps talking about, like, her brilliant mind, like how incredible her brain is and, and that his sort of initial hesitation about, you know, about the EMP, which seems like, you know, that he's He's so full of admiration at Raven for thinking of it and also so scared to try it because what if it does damage her brain and that he values that so much. And I think that planting these little reminders throughout this story that Raven is is more than just her physical limitations – feels like that's drawing the outline of the shape of what's going to be Raven's arc over the rest of the season. She doesn't need the city of light and an escape from her pain to feel like a whole person. She just needs to remember that having a leg that doesn't work doesn't define her ability to contribute. It's her mind that they need, how clever she is and how quick she is, which makes her, in that scene where she's possessed by Allie, terrifying because watching like the tag team of Raven and Allie sift through and analyze data and make calculations and be, you know, one step ahead of the team as they're figuring things out is so chilling because Raven is brilliant. And so like, you know, Allie's brain combined with Raven's brain feels like the makings of like a true supervillain. Well, I love that. I love that at
1: the end, Allie was like, She's the only person who can figure. like she was in here. and She's the only person who could figure out from being in here what I was up to. Like Allie is even just like, this is the smartest person
0: in the world. I think Allie has kind of a crush on Raven, which I think is great. From the moment that Allie met Raven, Raven has been different from every other person. The strength of her resistance, the sharpness of her mind. Allie doesn't care that she's got one leg that doesn't work. And, like, what Allie is seeing and valuing about why Raven is an asset and why they particularly need her. And she basically sort of, like, sends Jaha to target Raven directly. She's like, "That, that's the one that we need because of Raven's brain. So one of the things that I'm yeah. really excited about in, in seeing Raven at the heart of this story really ramping up is that it's placing us on a trajectory that if they stick the landing... I think they will have done something incredibly important in the message that they're sending about how people with altered abilities live with those abilities, you know, and yeah. in a way that, again, like with Jasper's PTSD, Raven's not going to be cured, and Jasper's not going to be over it. That's not how it works. But what right. they're showing us, and and I'm and I'm hopeful that this is the direction that Raven's story is taking, is that. Raven's life is different now because she has a physical limitation that is new, but that that doesn't define her. It doesn't limit her ability to be a whole person. And it isn't the whole of who she is. And that the story is removing the shame and stigma and and sense of self-recrimination and kind of bitterness that she has towards it and bringing her to a place where she's going to get to be the hero. Because of all the things that make her Raven and all the things that only Raven can do that are totally unrelated to spinal damage. Right. And, I, and I feel like the power of that message, what that says to viewers about accepting physical disabilities and physical limitations as being like a real factor and not the definition of who you are, Raven's brain is who she is. So, yeah, talk about, is it time <laughs> for me to say, Aaron? what do you think about Balark? And then just sort of sit back and listen to the squealing.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, super Balark shipper. I'm extremely, extremely happy with this episode, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, I mean, I, it's just, it was sort of like astonishing to me. We sort of, I sort of figured that they're clearly going to be reunited. So I was like, oh, well, at least they're going to be in the same room. And then it's sort of like, it's just like, there was so much that kept happening was amazing and i i really really love that even though things were awkward and they have issues that they haven't worked out you know i love that like the minute that they were like together again and there was a problem they had to solve that they were like right back into partner mode like okay raven is in trouble what are we gonna do we're in this together we're gonna solve this problem and so like i just like and it felt really true to me like it felt really true to the characters to me that this is how because that's how they've always been it's just like Got a problem? All right, here we go. Like, click into like leader mode, you know? Yeah. So, like, all the little like eye contact, you know, like looking to each other, and and when Clark gets out of the car to talk to Nyla, Bellamy just automatically being like, "All right, I'm gonna be right behind you," you know, that kind of like automatic trust and reliance that they have. Yeah. Coming back, I think that was really really important, and like something that's been really missing for both of them. When you see them together, you can see them relax and open up a little bit in a way that they don't when they're around <laughs> anybody else. There's a vulnerability in both of them this episode that we haven't seen since three hundred five, since they were talking to each other. Yeah. And the way that like Clark's face just kind of breaks open, that she shows the pain and the and the uncertainty that she's feeling. And I think part of it is because she's back with the other kids. You know, she's not a Polis anymore, and she doesn't kind of have those like walls up and those that kind of like Juan Heda shell that she has to have. But a lot of it, I think, is is Bellamy. There's a couple of curious things that happened in the course of things. So one of them is that I noticed during this Jasper and Clark, that first scene where she's apologizing. The background music that's playing is a piece of the Blark theme,
0: Mm -hmm. which I
1: find really interesting. And then that same piece of the Blark theme, I believe, plays... During the final scene between Bellamy and Clark when she's binding his hand and she says, you'll recover, and he says, will I? So I thought that was a really interesting parallel, that that music was playing in both of those moments, especially the, the sort of Jasper and Clark one. I noticed the first time and I was like, wait a second, why is that playing when she's talking to Jasper? I haven't listened to the soundtrack yet, but I read somewhere that there, there's a song on there called Awakening and that a piece of the Bellark theme is in that song. So it might be that song. It might be a way that the, the track that's playing might be Awakening. Uh-huh. But it's still really interesting to me that there's overlap between those two songs and that that music is playing on both of those scenes. And I think it sort of like picks up on something really important about Bellamy and Clark as a relationship on the show, not just like as a, not just as like a shipping thing, you know, like this is setting aside the fact that I want them to mush their beautiful faces together. Um <laughs> But it, it kind of goes back to what they what they represent as characters and what they represent to each other as characters. And because I think one thing that that one thing that both of those scenes are doing the what the Jasper and Clark one and the Bellamy and Clark one those are both moments when each of them Clark first and then Bellamy are facing up to the sort of like painful awful thing that they have been trying to sort of look away from or justify. So they're facing up to the hurt that they have caused by doing something that they believe they had to do to protect their people. That's why I think maybe the track that's playing is awakening, because I think that maybe if, if, if it is, then what's happening is an awakening in both of them about what they've been sort of shutting themselves off from accepting and recognizing and facing up to sort of like facing the pain that they have experienced and that they've caused others and starting to reckon with that. But I think it's really important when those moments happen, Bellamy and Clark are linked together in a couple of different ways, because for one thing, I think that kind of revelation is only really possible when they're around each other. I think that like the level of vulnerability that they, because they've each been sort of like faced with that a little bit at some point, like um, Clark faced Emerson And Bellamy has been confronted by all sorts of people about what he did, but they never cracked. They never sort of like show that vulnerability. And it's only when they're sort of in the context, when they're around each other, that that starts to show. So I think that's maybe one thing is that there's a sense of, of possibility of acknowledging that. And I think that maybe the reason that it's possible it is because of that kind of automatic acceptance. And that's like so important. Like I said, it is really, really important that no one gets forgiveness in this episode, but everyone gets acceptance. That what we reach is not some sense of like, this is okay. You know, I forgive you for what you did, or I understand why you're doing it. It's okay. And now that I get, now that I know why you did it, it's okay. Well, What we get is you did this, you had your reasons. And I still affirm that we have, have this connection and that, we have a relationship and that you're important to me and that we survived together. We're in this together. So there's a kind of like affirmation of connection, despite the, the horrible things you've done that I think is really deep and powerful. Yeah. And that is epitomized best in Bellamy and Clark because they've always given that to each other. Yeah. And they've always given it to each other so automatically and so freely. And I think it comes from that, like the reason that they can do that is the same reason that can snap right back into partnership mode again, because there's this kind of like deep core of understanding and acceptance of each other that goes beyond the circumstances and what they've done and what they're currently feeling in a way that no other character has with them or with anybody else. Mark is the only person that Bellamy can have that moment of saying to her, you know, like, after after he says to Nyla, I'm sorry, and she says, people like you always are, which mirrors when Jasper at the end of that first conversation says to Clark, you can shove your regret up your ass. Like, those are kind of two parallel moments, I think, also very deliberately paralleled, where they both express regret and they both have people they hurt say, that's not good enough. But Bellamy, like, the only person that he could say, what do you do when you realize maybe you're not a good guy? She's the only person he could say that to, I think. Yeah, yeah. And trust that him admitting that he might not be the good guy isn't going to have him rejected. She's going to continue to accept and understand him. So when she says, maybe there are no good guys, I mean, you know, it's like the thesis of the show and it's like so important in so many ways. That is that like epitome of the Clark Bellamy relationship. And I think it's also, you know, so this is kind of like set of themes that are developing through the show that are really crystallized and, and made most potent and concrete and powerful in Clark and Bellamy and in their relationship, which I like, think is why it's like so central to this episode and so central to the show. Yeah. I think the, the, the wound tending moments that those parallel moments are really important and, and kind of like a nice touch because when Bellamy is binding up the bite wound from Raven, like, I think what's really powerful about that moment is Clark's face you know, when she looks at him and she admits that Allie got to her. And especially when he says, I'll go let her beat me up for a while. Like, God, like, Clark's face in that moment, she is so sad and so grateful and so vulnerable. And then, like, I think it's significant. At that, that is the moment she turns around and apologizes to Jasper. She is admitting weakness to Bellamy, who she can't do anybody else, really. In that moment and then also later on when Clark comes out and checks on Bellamy, you know, and she sort of like she takes his hand and caresses it basically. <laughs> yeah, which is like, you know, every every Velarker is just like, ah um, But like, you know, in that moment too where he like, she like smiles in him and he makes that vulnerability and he's got that like he you can see his like jaw clench and the and the what pain he's in. In both of those moments you have a kind of parallel moment of them physically healing each other's wounds. Which they like sustained and kind of like moments of emotional distress. Like they're offering each other healing on these kind of like multiple levels simultaneously. It's so lovely. I, I think it's like a really, really lovely touching yeah. moment.
0: Going back to what you were, what you are saying before about Clark's face in the moment as Bellamy offers to, you know, kind of go in and, and sort of tag her out with Raven. That I think also parallels to the maybe there are no good guys moment is that, you know, what I, what I really loved about them in this episode is that We haven't seen either of them in the course of the whole season. No one else has ever been able to or has offered to step up and take any of the burdens off either of their shoulders. You know, I think that for Clark, with Lexa there was this sort of veneer that she had to keep up where she's sort of playing the role of Juan Hedda. And she's owning this sort of power and authority and she's the commander of death. And so Clark and Lexa are like the power couple of Polis. They're Hedda and Juan Hedda. Clark has to sort of absorb some of the stoic badassness that makes Lexa who she is in how she lives in that world and how she presents herself. It's like armor that she wears, but it doesn't relieve the weight. It doesn't take off any of the pressure. It sort of adds on more pressure because she has to sort of be strong all the time. You see, you kind of like crumple a little bit in that moment where Bellamy is like, "I've got this one." And and throughout the whole episode, they keep passing that sort of back and forth to each other. You know, like Clark asking yeah, Bellamy yeah. if he's okay, which we never see anybody do. You know, and and I then know, just
1: killed me, like no one yeah. ever like. Is, like no one cares how Bellamy's doing. Him, you know, it's just like she asks yeah. to me. like it's so like tiny little thing, but it's so huge. Yeah.
0: And and that and then in yeah. the end when she when she gives him the comfort that her mom gave her after Mount Weather, like the mother-daughter moment Dad. after Mount Weather, like where Abby sort of contradicts her own moral black and white thinking when she sort of throws in Clark's face a little bit, you know, after Tom D.C., like, we're the good guys, don't forget that. And that the closure of sort of Abby's arc of stepping out of that moral black and whiteness comes in that moment where she tells Clark, like, I was wrong, Good guys and bad guys aren't a thing. Like those are yeah. artificial lines that we draw for ourselves that are antiquated and don't fit in this new world order that we live in. So don't put that pressure on yourself to feel like you have to be this thing because that thing doesn't exist. And so Clark taking that thing that, that I, I like to believe, I think in a lot of ways is something that she, she's trying to hold on to those words. She's sort of saying that as much for herself, but then again, like she's taking a weight off Bellamy in a way that Bellamy has been taking a weight off of her and Bellamy can't show this weakness to Octavia and Clark couldn't show it to Lexa. So no one has been able to sort of step in and alleviate those burdens. And so, so I think that, you know, sort of regardless of like what people ship or what you don't ship, but the partnership that they have where it's like for the first time, we're seeing somebody reach out to them and say like, I can carry part of that burden for you. And that is just so, like, they both have been needing that so much. And there's no other character besides each other that's capable of giving them that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also, I think because, like, you know, Clark knows from, from 305, you know, like she's the only person that, that Bellamy has said to that, that he's been struggling so hard. He's been trying so hard to be a good leader, to be the kind of leader that, that the people need, you know, yeah. he's been trying so hard to step up and do what she expected him to do, which was like, step up and take over while she was gone. Yeah. And so like now, and like, I think one of the reasons that maybe he clung so much to the idea that he, that he had done the right thing, you know, that he had made the right choices because that the alternative is that he's just an utter failure, you know, and like, right. and that he's everything that the Allie slash Raven said to him, that he's, you know, like a follower and a failure and a, and somebody that his mother would despise and so forth. And so to have Clark, who's a person that he's always kind of looked up to, maybe somewhat, or just sort of like looked at, at as someone that he can rely on, but also someone that he, whose judgment he trusts to have that person say to him, you know, in that darkest moment where he's like, where he's thinking like, oh my God, is everything that I've done and that I thought was right, actually wrong? You know, like, have I become the villain by trying to be the hero? To have her say, maybe there are no good guys, To sort of like for her to affirm that, it's okay if he screwed up, you know, that doesn't mean that he is like worthless or that she rejects him. I yeah. think that's like so humongous, you know, Yeah. that kind of just like that acceptance of, of like, not, not even like, it's okay. It's okay. You, if you meant you well, so it's not a mistake, but that acceptance of like, you made a mistake, but I still, I still accept you and care about you and, and love you. And I don't reject you because you're human and you made a mistake. I think that's a really like deep and powerful message. You know, like obviously most of us are mistakes that we've made aren't killing 300 people. <laughs> right, right. Um But, like, that theme in this episode of sort of, like, it doesn't have to be an either or. It doesn't have to be either you forgive and you get over it and it's fine. Or, like, everything's over and you're done and you have no relationship. That being able to accept people when they've fucked up is, like, a really important thing and is what makes you family. You know, like, I think that's really, like, an important message.
0: For the narrative, so much of season three has been putting various characters in positions of reinforcing this idea that Bellamy is a monster, that Bellamy has done all these terrible things for which, and we talked about this before, that we were not given, I think just in terms of sort of the writing and the editing, we were not given as compelling of reasons as we would have wanted, but then the other characters are continually sort of stepping in and, and reinforcing this idea that no one is making room to understand Bellamy or to give him the benefit of the doubt that he made choices for what he believed to be good reasons. And so hearing that from Clark, who's the only person who can say that in a way where he will hear it and believe it and feel, I think in some way an alleviation of some of that pressure. I mean, I think is overdue in a lot of ways, but, but is, is so hugely important because when Clark says it to Bellamy, like we, it's not just that, that he gets that sense of relief, but it's like, we know that, like the the narrative wants us to understand and believe that the narrative wants us to have that nuance, like you said, kind of third way. We're not erasing these things that happened. We're not rejecting you forever for these things that happened. We're saying these things happened, and we've all made choices. You know, it's it's yeah. it's the way yeah. Kane talks to Abby in that scene in season two where it's like, yeah, we've exactly. all done this shit, like, and that's kind of I think the through line of the whole show is like. No one gets to be in a position to judge somebody else for the thing that they've done because we've all done bad things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My one reservation about the wound tending thing is that I think it's it's like such a direct parallel to the Clark Lexa scene Mm -hmm. from... Um, 304, yeah. where Clark binds up Lexa's wound. You know, Lexa had sustained that injury in a battle that she undertook in order to protect Clark, essentially, or to protect Clark's people. And, and that scene was the scene in which Clark ultimately forgave Lexa for Mount Weather. You know, so it was like, it was a scene of like sort of emotional and physical healing feeling simultaneously the same way these were. And I feel like that's got to be deliberate that they're sort of like paralleling all three of those. And I'm a little bit like, I don't know how much I like that direct of a parallel. Yeah. Like for one thing, by the time we got to the third one, the Belarck shipper half of my brain was like shrieking its head off. The other half of my brain was like, now it just kind of feels repetitive. Like there's parallels and then there's repetition. And Part of it is because it just feels wrong to take the same relationship beat from one ship and give it to another Yeah, so close together, you know, especially right. given what happened with Lexa and Clexa and everything yeah. else. Like it just, not that it didn't work. I think it did what it wanted and they wanted it to do. But it's just like another one of those moments. There's so many in the season where I'm just like, you know, I question
0: the judgment that went into making that choice a right. little bit, you I, know? <laughs> I feel the same way. I, I feel like if you were watching this entirely devoid of context, like if, if this was the only episode of this show you'd ever seen and everything else had to sort of like, the plot had been just like described to you and you were watching it out of that context. Those are lovely moments. Yeah. And, and you're right. And they, they do, they do real narrative work in terms of sort of driving the relationship forward. The physical wound tending, paralleling emotional wound yeah. healing is beautiful. I totally agree with you. It is again, I think it's another, it's unexamined. It's, it's a moment where the way, yeah. the way yeah. it was going to land to the audience who actually watches the show things like wrist cutting or like the dead lesbian trope. I mean, this is not on that level, but, but it's like, it makes me wonder, did the people writing this moment have a fully three-dimensional understanding of the way that this show is watched? And I don't uh, think they do. I don't think that they do at all the time. And I think that there's things that have a sort of an additional level of weight that the audience puts on them. And you can ask good, important questions I think about what is the obligation of artists to take those things into account. And there are many schools of thought about like, how much is it the job of the writers and showrunners to care about sort of the specificities of how fans watch the show? There's many different approaches to that question, but I do think that one of the things that, that gave me pause about that a little bit is if the paralleling of those moments is just set up, even in sort of a lightly foreshadowing way that they're setting up Clark and Bellamy for an overtly explicitly romantic connection in this season. That to me is an enormous mistake. Putting Clark in the position of twice in one season having well actually three times, I guess if you count her her one night stand with Nyla. Clark hooks up with Nyla at the beginning and then goes to polis and, you know, and we're meant to believe is is in love with Lexa and is in this significant emotional relationship with Lexa and then in what in the span of this show is going to be what like weeks probably like a matter of weeks before the season ends is then moving on in a way where her feelings for Bellamy in a romantic way become explicit that feels to me really troubling i have i have no yeah, problem in that same way if they are moving towards a place where Clark and Bellamy are going to become a romantic relationship and if as far as they get is Bellamy realizing that he has feelings, I have no problem with that. Clark's emotional state is totally different. And so that was the thing We're watching the wound tending where I was like, I'm hoping that what this is not doing is telling us that Clark is going to have the exact same emotional journey from wound tending to sex and love with Bellamy in the next five episodes that she just had with Lexa. Because that, again, makes it feel like that feels way too rushed. And makes the entire show about Clark's romantic relationships in a way that I don't feel like that's the show that we're watching.
1: No, I agree. And I also think it tends, it would tend to really cheapen both uh, Clark and Lexa and Clark and Bellamy. You know, I think it's sort of like, I just, I just think it would really diminish Clark and Lexa in a way that it's troubling, especially if they wanted us to believe that that was like a truly like a love relationship. It would diminish Clark and Bellamy that they could sort of like, and I, you know, I'm speaking as like a, like a hard girl, like I love Bellark, like I'm end game Bellark and I, and I, yeah. you know, like, and I feel, and I, I think that you can point to a lot of evidence that they've been setting it up in the show for a long time, but I still think that Bellamy and Clark becoming canon any more than Bellamy re- realizing his re- his feelings this season would be rushing it. I think would so be too close to, yeah. to Clexa. I mean, like, I do suspect that what we're gonna get is, at most, is going to be Bellamy realizing his feelings for Clark, and I think right. that we will because, like, we they basically already made it. We textual sort of did, yeah. With with the with the Gina thing, where so like you're too bad you're, you weren't so devoted to Gina. So like, it's out there, you know, like that was said, it was yeah. put out there. Clark heard it, you know, because we saw right. that
0: they could hear in the other room. That was the moment that Bellamy, who had who had done a really admirable job the whole time of resisting all of Allie's baiting. He doesn't take the bait when Allie brings up his role in the culling or his role in the massacre, which are both huge things that we know have a huge emotional weight to him. And that he doesn't take the bait when she brings up his mom. Like, But the thing that sets him off, like the part where he comes as close as we see him to letting Allie get under his skin is drawing that parallel between Clark and Gina. And so to me, what that says is that's not coming from Allie being just sort of mean and manipulative on purpose, that it's something that's rooted in things that Raven has seen of the relationship between Clark and Bellamy and how Bellamy is towards her, and that she is pulling out into the light something that she knows Bellamy well enough to know that he is unwilling to make that conscious you know, a lot of the other things that Evil Alley says are things that we know that those characters are sensitive about. And we know that they are thinking and feeling. You know, Jasper's uselessness yeah. and the blood on Clark's hands. Like, we know that that's that character's baggage. And the Gina thing's different. And I think the reason that that's the thing that gets the reaction is because it feels like she's tapped into something that Bellamy has been keeping really, 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 really deeply yeah. buried. And that that's probably why... hasn't
1: even admitted to himself it, Exactly.
0: And it, I think that's yeah. why it lands. And it's only Nyla running in that prevents Bellamy from losing it completely. There's something significant for all of these characters in what's the thing that Ali says to them that sends them over the edge? And for Jasper, it's, it's reminding him that he's a useless waste of space who should just die, which we kind of think is how Jasper thinks of himself. For Clark, it's her complicitness in her father's death. And for Bellamy, it's sort of implying that he never really cared about Gina because all along he had feelings for somebody else. And so the low key sort of implication that that's Bellamy's point of vulnerability is interesting. And I think that pushing it any further than yeah. that in an explicit way. This soon is a mistake, but that's a really interesting psychological area to mine that I that I am interested in exploring but I but again I I think that in terms of making it a canon relationship this season is too soon setting it up by the end of this season to become something that is a huge part of season four makes a lot of sense to me narratively
1: I agree with you I mean I think that we'll probably there's a good chance that we're going to get some sort of like acknowledgement that there's feelings on Bellamy's side but I think that that's as far as it'll go and I think that's as far as it should go anything more would
0: be too much I agree Okay, well, we'll wrap it up. I just wanted to thank everybody who's been listening. We have listeners from all over the world, which is just crazy and bananas. We're both taking questions on Tumblr. You can submit questions on SoundCloud in the comments or in the notes if you have things you want to talk about, questions about the episodes for us to answer on the air. We are happy to do that. And we will see you next week.